Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, and verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, Angels came and began to minister to him. And Lord God, we thank you for your presence here with us today. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given to us. And Lord, our prayer today is that you would open our hearts, that we would see wonderful things in your word, and Lord, that we would become the people you want us to be as you work in us and through us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Temptation is something we all deal with. It's an unrelenting part of life. We battle the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. It's like quicksand. You get too close and you get caught. Sometimes we stand strong and sometimes we give in. It's like a trap door that you fall through. We all know of people that have given in to temptation and ruined their lives and their families and their testimony for Christ. No wonder Jesus had us pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In one of the biggest spiritual battles of all time, Jesus being tempted by Satan, You see God's good purpose, as well as Satan's evil schemes. In Christ's victory, we see how we too can gain victory over temptation instead of getting thrashed. God doesn't want us to fall through the trap door. He doesn't want us to be trapped in the quicksand of compromise. He wants us to stand in his strength so that we can be useful to him in his service. That's his desire for us. So first, let's look at the nature and reality of temptation. 
It's seen in verses 1 and 2. Now, about 30 years of age, Jesus began his ministry publicly. His baptism was the first part of his entrance into the public arena. He was identified in that act as the promised Messiah, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he spent some time in isolation before facing Satan directly. It's a common truth that victory, after victory, comes temptation. After victory comes temptation. You're up on the mountaintop. And the next thing you know, you're down in the valley. Verse 1. In verse 1, it says that Jesus was then led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it's significant that Jesus didn't wander into temptation. Jesus didn't just wander into temptation, much like we often do. But he was led by the Spirit of God. Sometimes we just wander into it. and Oh, you know what? I was just minding my own business, and all of a sudden, there it was. And hey, come on, I'm human. Reminds me a lot of Aaron and the golden calf. You know, God, they gave me all this gold. And I, all I did is throw it in the fire and look, out comes this calf. You can blame me or what? We do that. We walk right into temptation. But Jesus was led by the Spirit of God. It was allowed by God. What's temptation? What exactly is Temptation. The Greek word for temptation is pirazo, which means to put to the test, or to try, or to prove. And it has two primary connotations. The context shows you which connotation is meant. The first is with regard to what God does. God tests our genuineness and our sincerity through testing. A great example is in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, if you go there with me, you'll notice that God tested Abraham. And he asked him to do this. He said, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. God was testing Abraham's faith. He was testing the genuineness or sincerity of his faith. We see in Hebrews chapter 11 that uh, regarding that very same situation. In Hebrews 11, 17, it says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was offering his only begotten son. And so you see that the first connotation for, for this word, it means put to the test, God tests our genuineness and our sincerity, but we know that God does not tempt anyone. And God will never lead someone into temptation. He himself cannot be enticed to sin. But God will test his servants to show his power and his calling in their lives. And in this way, Jesus needed to be tested. Now, the second connotation of the word for temptation is with regard to what Satan does. What Satan does is he entices people to do evil, to try and trip up a person and cause them to fall or entangle them in a a sin, to get them to do what is contrary to the will of God for their life. The word is used of the trickery of the Pharisees in testing Jesus. 
Every time they tested Jesus, the context shows they were trying to entice him to do what was wrong because their motives were wrong. See, God's purpose in testing is good. He wants his children to grow. He desires his good for you. He works towards his glory. But Satan's purpose in in enticing is evil. He attempts to show someone unapproved. He he attempts to, to bring out the worst in a person, where God attempts to bring out the best. Satan is called the tempter in verse 3. But the nature of his temptation is always to twist the truth. He consistently warps what is good and makes it into what is evil. The temptation of Jesus was very real. Jesus really was tempted. It wasn't kind of a make-believe temptation that has nothing to do with the kind of temptation we, we experience. It was the same kind of temptation that we experience. God used it to to show Christ's authenticity and his genuineness. Now, Satan's motives in tempting Jesus were diametrically opposed to God's motives in testing Jesus. God's motives were good. Satan's motives were diabolical. The fact that Jesus could be tempted has led some to assume that he also could have fallen in sin. With regard to the ability of Jesus to sin or not, the issues are very complex. Jesus was tempted, but he had no propensity to sin. No desire to go that way. No sin nature. But you've got to realize this about temptation. To be tempted is not to sin. To be tempted is not sin. Sin is one response to temptation. But they're two separate things. We join them together. We join them together because that's what happens with us. We're tempted and we sin. Often. And so we, must, we think that if you're tempted, it must mean that you, you're able to sin. And, and, and in our experience, we, we do it often enough that it seems like one and the same. It's two separate things. To be tempted is not to sin. Sin is one response to temptation. Jesus could be tempted, but could not sin. Now, it's a, it's, it seems to be obvious from this passage of Scripture that Satan didn't really understand the makeup of the one he was messing with. That he might not have completely understood the whole kenosis of Christ, how he was 100% God and 100% man, but while he was on earth, he voluntarily laid aside his privileges. It seems to be that Satan didn't fully understand. You know, sometimes we attribute to Satan the attributes of God. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not all-powerful. So it is very plausible that he did not really understand who he was messing with here. Now, while Jesus set aside his privileges as God and the independent exercise of his divine attributes, and we see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he did not change in his essence. He did not change in his nature. He did not give away any part of his deity. He never stopped being God. So the truth is, Jesus is God and could not sin. Being God, he could not sin. Now, I've had people say to me, 
I had someone say to me once, a friend of mine, he said, you know what? It gives me great comfort to know that Jesus could have sinned because that helps me to know that he knows how I feel. I'm like, he's God. He knew how you feel before that. (laughs) Go with me to Hebrews 4.15 because you were either thinking of this verse or trying to remember where it was as I was saying this. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 This is the verse that is always quoted as, well, hold on a second. He was tempted like us, so he had to have a propensity to sin. That would be the line of reasoning many would hold. Now, verse 14 starts this way. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The Greek literally reads, one who has been tempted in all things as without sin. And in verse 16 it says, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ being fully God and fully man was able to be tempted in every way that we are. Without sin, though. Sinless to start with and no chance of sinning. The temptation was real. He was a real human being. He felt it all. Unlike us, he took the full brunt of temptation because he could never buckle under its pressure. Now, you've got to chew on this idea for a little while, but the fact that Jesus could never buckle under the pressure of temptation means that he was able to take the entire amount of temptation. We maybe take 5% and we, we give in. You know, uncle, you know. Jesus took 100% and never gave in. To be tempted doesn't, I'm going to say it again, doesn't necessitate the inclination to give in to sin. Jesus was tempted like us, yet not sinful like us, and therefore able to do battle for us. Our Savior is strong. Our God is strong. It gives you 100% confidence in who God is. For those that would say, well, hey, Jesus could have sinned, I'd say, tell me, when did he stop being able to do that? And do you have 100% confidence in him right now to hold your salvation? Our God is strong. When Jesus arrived on the scene, on earth, there was 100% certainty that he would be 100% successful in his mission. 100% assurance that he would win, that he would have victory. God was not hedging his bets in case the sun should fall. This was planned before the foundation of the world. And no plan of God can be thwarted. This intricate plan of salvation thought long before the world began gives you more confidence in God's ability to do what he says he will do in your life today. To keep his promises today. We're weak. He's perfect. And he is with us. Always. The bottom line is that from God's standpoint, the tests demonstrated the nature and the the genuineness of Jesus. See, with Jesus, there was the reality of temptation and no propensity to sin. 
No desire to sin. No sin nature. And that actually made the, the, the temptation more powerful. One of my favorite writers, Andre Sayu, wrote this about temptation. To be tempted is to enter a cave. It's a deep cave. But most of us never find that out. We bail almost at the entrance. And few ever see the dark parts of the interior, nor feel the full force of the darkness. Jesus ventured in all the way and wrestled Minotaur and Cyclops. Don't ever say, she writes, it wasn't fair that Jesus had a leg up on us in temptation because he didn't have a sin nature. You see, what is impossible for him to sin, and that fact actually intensified the temptation. And he could not give in, but he had to endure until they were over. Verse 2. Verse 2, after we read that, that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it says that he had, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's some willpower. 40 days and 40 nights. We can't go three hours. I'm starving. If you got kids, you know that, right? Oh, oh mommy, I'm starving. Was well, your stomach, you know, getting... No? Okay, you're not starving. Your stomach's not bloated. You're not starving. Israel's wilderness wanderings. 40 years in the desert. Jesus ate nothing during the 40 days. Moses and Elijah had similar uh, periods of time where they did not eat. Extended periods of time without food or drink requires God's intervention and his protection. Fasting, by the way, is not commanded in the New Testament. Fasting is not commanded. It is assumed. It's assumed that we will fast. In fact, you can turn over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. See, Jesus said very little about fasting. Very little. His most direct words were when he warned about doing it so that others would see you doing that. Look at Matthew 6 and verse 16. Here's what he said. Whenever you fast, again, he's not telling them to fast. He's basically assuming they will fast. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. In fasting, you humble your soul before God. True fasting is a commitment to do without the distractions, to put aside any distractions, including food and drink, to focus on God, to focus on his concerns. And while you, you may become physically weak when you fast, you become spiritually strong. You gain spiritual strength. After 40 days, the tempter approached Jesus. And in Jesus' answers, we see the preferred response to temptation. In verses 3 through 10. You see the tempter, Satan. You see the tempted, Jesus. And then you see the response. Verse 3. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, that word if uh, makes it seem like he is questioning Jesus' position as the Son of God. You can also translate that word since. Well, since you're the Son of God, let's see you do this. Either way, it's a challenge to Jesus' position and authority. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to, be, to come into bread, to make into bread. Make those stones bread. Well, that's, that's a no-brainer for Jesus. He could do that like that, right? He made the world. He made the stones. He could change the molecular structure of stones into bread. That's nothing for him. He called the world into existence. He commanded every atom in the universe. Not a problem for the Son of God. But the test was Satan's challenge to see whether Jesus would use his position and authority for selfish reasons. To use his sonship in a way that was inconsistent with the will of God. Inconsistent with his mission. To prove who he was by acting independently of God's plan and God's will. Which he absolutely, by the way, would not do. Verse 4, Jesus answers with the word of God. He says, it is written. He is appealing. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. His response was both biblical and profound. He is, he is going back to the writings of Moses. A lesson God ta- tried to teach Israel about this very subject. That mankind was not to view human existence as dependent upon physical sustenance, but on God's provision. Look with me at Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. By the way, every answer that Jesus gave to Satan comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, first of all, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. Moses said this, He humbled you and let you be hungry. He's talking about the wilderness wanderings. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of, the, of God. So Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. He shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God promises to meet our every need. God promises to meet your every need. My God shall supply all all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We're better off to depend upon God and wait for his provision than to satisfy ourselves when and how we think we should. But isn't that at the root of much of our giving into temptation? But I need this, I want this, and there's a way to get it. So I'll go there. Jesus, who would feed more than 5,000 people off some loaves and fishes, because he had compassion on them, refused to meet his own physical needs apart from the Father. He was living out what he would teach his disciples. In Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 32 with me. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Here's what he said to them. You know, we get all worried and bothered about how we're going to make ends meet, right? Here's what Jesus said. Verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothes? 
For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. They go after them and try to meet them in their own way. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, his rulership in your life, his righteousness, and all these things will fall into place. All these things will be added to you. God will meet your needs. God will do what he says. Trust him to provide. You can trust him. Look at verse 5. Next thing Satan does, he takes him up to the top of, of Jerusalem, into the holy city, has him stand on the very pinnacle of the temple, the highest place a person could get. Probably more than 150 feet above the ground, an almost pr- a pretty much fatal fall if you jumped off. <laughs> right? You think so? Now he takes them there, and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, whether it's show me or since you are, he challenges him to fall from the greatest height a person could fall at that place. He appeals to personal gain. You won't get hurt. You won't get hurt. He even uses scripture. Go to Psalm 91 with me. He uses Psalm 91 verses 10 and 11. To make his second challenge, I guess, uh, sound more spiritual. Must have figured, hey, if Jesus could use it, I will. I'll do it. But Satan often twists scripture. Takes it out of context. Psalm 91 and verse 11. Here's what Satan said to Jesus. Throw yourself down because look, look, right here. It's in scripture. For he will give his angels charge concerning you. Sounds right, right? It's from the Bible. Verse 12, they will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. Hey, it's the easy way. Go, you can do it. You can do this. See, it's in the Bible. You know, that's one of the dangers of taking Bible, uh, the Bible out of context. That's why when you teach, you shouldn't just take one verse, another verse, and glue them all together because you're apt to go the wrong way with it why you got to take it in context and the context here is not about testing God to see if he will do what he said he will do in fact Satan leaves out one important phrase go back at verse 11 he says he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways the psalmist is saying when you're going in God's will you're protected you step outside of God's protective covering you're on your own he will guard you in all your ways. He left, that part, he left that part out. Doing what Satan suggested was not God's will. Diametrically opposed to God's will. You deliberately put yourself in danger trying to make God prove that he will protect you and you're in trouble. That calls his faithfulness into question. Jesus did not need to to test God's protective care. He knew it to be true. So Jesus answers in verse 7. He responds again with the word of God. And he he says, and and by the way, on the other hand, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. You're using the scripture in the wrong way. On the other hand, it is written, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We're forbidden in Scripture to test God. 
You, you wonder about that one? Go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 9 and find out what happens to Ananias and Sapphira when they did it. Scary. Go over to 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and find out what happened when God's people in the wilderness wanderings tested God. Scary. Death by serpents. Death by snakes. To test God is to doubt him. To doubt God is not to trust him. Not to trust is sin. So Satan comes up with a third and final challenge. Verse 8. Again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Keep in mind that Satan is the God, little g, of this world. And he says, all this, all this is yours if you just bow down and worship me. Simple. All you need to do is that one little thing. Appeal to desire for power and glory. We'd buckle under that pressure. Why should you not? Why, why should you wait for what is rightly yours? Why be a servant, Jesus, when you can be a king right now? What, Jesus, what, what, what Satan wasn't realizing is he was a king no matter what. He was the servant king. All, all of it belonged to him. See, Satan says to Jesus, hey, by the way, if you do this, you'll have all power. Jesus says, sorry, dude. No. Not going to happen. Wouldn't be prudent. He voluntarily lays aside, while on earth, his power. But it was still all his. So verse 10, Jesus responds with God's word again. And he says, it is written. Deuteronomy 6.13 this time. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Get out of here, Satan. That's what Jesus said. He said, be gone, go. Shades of when, 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 when Peter was saying, oh no, Jesus, you can't do that. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You see, here it says Satan left him, verse 11. Satan left him. Luke tells us he left until an opportune time. Don't think that when you have victory over temptation that you're all scot-free. Oh, everything's great now. Oh, no. We are in a battle all the time. You always got to be on guard. The minute you start thinking you're strong, bam! You get shot down and you know how weak you are, right? It's what happens to us when we get kind of puffed up. Oh, hey, I had victory over temptation. There must have been something about me that made me overcome that. Wrong answer. See, Satan tempts Jesus, interestingly, much the same way that he tempted Eve back in the garden. The lust of the eyes. Physical appetite. Genesis 3.1. Eve, you can eat of any tree. It's all there for you. Jesus, you can eat by changing stones to bread. Lust of the flesh. Eve, you will not die. Genesis 3, 4, you won't die. Jesus, you, you won't hurt your foot. The boastful pride of life. Eve, you will be like God. Genesis 3, 5. Jesus, you'll have all the world's kingdoms. To each temptation, 
Jesus responded with the word of God in the power of the spirit of God. With the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6, 17. All three of Jesus' reply were from scripture. They were all from Deuteronomy. He had to perfectly obey the law, perfectly uphold the law. He appealed to the, the written word of God. It is written. Here is what God said. For us, it's Psalm 119, verse 11. Many of you have memorized it, especially if you're in Awana. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. What you see in verses 3 through 10 is the deceiver debunked and dismissed by Scripture, by the Word of God, applied in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, when God's word becomes an integral part of your life, it strengthens you against temptation. It literally uh, imprints your soul. It washes you. It literally dyes your soul. The more you meditate upon the word of God. You don't know the word of God, you're in danger. Open up your Bible and, 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 and read it. Let God's word cleanse your soul. What can you do? What can you do when you're enticed to do something that that is not pleasing to God, that that is against his will? Remember this, to be tempted is not to sin. To mess around with the temptation is. To play with it is. To coddle it is. It's what you do with the temptation that determines whether it's sin or not. You have two choices when it comes to temptation. We have two choices. Resist or give in. There is no middle ground. There is none. You either go with the temptation or you say no to the temptation. We often say yes to it. We go 5% of the way into that cave and we're like, oh, I can't do it anymore. I'm buckling. I'm caving. I'm weak. Hey, what can you say? And we excuse it. The best defense is to do what Jesus did. You deal with temptation and the power of the Spirit of God with the sword of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and thereby debunk and dismiss the tempter, the deceiver, the father of lies. And you do it with Scripture. There are two, two common New Testament ideas about what to do with temptation. One is the idea of resisting, resist temptation. In fact, go to James 4 with me. James chapter 4 and verse 7 James 4, Hebrews, James, verse, chapter 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. The verse right before says God's opposed to the, to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit to God. Bring yourself to God at his disposal. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you first got to submit yourself to God. Right? You don't do that in a vacuum. You you submit to God, then you resist. Then you're able even to resist. Submit to, resist the devil, he will flee. Go to 1 Peter, the next book, 1 Peter chapter 5 and and verse 8. Right after talking about casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. We got a lot of worries, a lot of cares in our lives. It says, cast all that upon God because he cares for you. And then verse 8 says, be of sober spirit. 
Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the world. You're not alone. All people are going through the same types of of temptations. Be tempted is not sin. It's what you do with it. One writer put it this way. Life is full of trap doors. Honestly, this writer says, I don't know what the devil knows. Whether his knowledge of human nature is more of a general expertise or a study of you and me in particular. But 1 Peter 5.8 suggests he has a door with your name on it. You've got to resist. And closely related to that idea of resisting is the idea of fleeing, running away, getting out of there, not hanging around to, to play with the temptation, but to get out of there. Flee. The best example I can think of is Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You can see it in Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 through 18. But Potiphar's wife saw that Joseph was a, a good-looking young man, and, and she was harassing him or harassing him and wanting him to commit adultery, and he said no. Interesting, though, he didn't run right away. He had a job to do, so he refused. You see in Genesis 39, verse 8, he refused. He said, no way, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin against God, not going to sin against my master, not going to do it. Verse 10, she keeps on bugging him day after day. And he it says, verse 10, he does not listen to her. He would not listen. Ignored it. Verse 12, he ran. He ran. He didn't run the first day, though. He avoided her as long as he could. He ignored the invitations. Then it escalated and he got out of there. Quick. He still got thrown in jail for it because he was falsely accused. Because she had a part of his clothing, right? Ripped part of his cloak. 1 Corinthians 10.13. It goes like this. No temptation has overtaken you. You you, you stumble over a temptation or it comes upon you. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. It's a normal part of human experience. To be tempted is to be human. But it says that God is faithful and that he will with the temptation, temptation's still there, not going away, with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He will show you the the, the good trap door. He will show you the escape route. But you need to want to find it. He will show you the way of escape so that you can endure it. When you want what God wants, God will show you the escape route. A couple more places, and I will just give you the reference. You can look these up. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee youthful lusts. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. 1 Timothy 6, 11. Flee a bunch of things that aren't good for you and pursue what is right and good and true. We're to flee evil things. We're to pursue what is good. But what happens is we often give in to temptation and compromise our convictions. We don't flee. We don't resist. And when you give in to temptation, it feels really bad the first time, doesn't it? You feel horrible. And then the second time, 
Well, you still feel bad, but not so much. And then the next time, and the next time, and the next time, till you wake up one day, and it doesn't even seem like a sin anymore. Because your conscience has become seared. Becomes hardened to it, and, and you, there are people that will even talk themselves into, that's what God wants me to do. When from the get-go, you knew it was wrong, and you say yes to it, and you wake up one day thinking that's the right thing to do. And then you start talking yourself into the fact that it's God's will. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be blessed. Don't put yourself or stay in the path of temptation. It's playing with fire. What do you tell your kids? Don't touch that. You will get burned. It's fire. Don't say to yourself, well, hey, I should be strong enough in the Lord to take this on my own. I'm going to fight this on my own. Don't go there. And don't excuse it. Don't stay in it. Don't coddle it. Get out of there. You got to turn off your computer because you're looking at stuff on there that's not good? Do it. You're going to mess your family up if you don't. You're going to mess your life up if you don't. You're going to mess your job up if you don't. God, God loves you. He doesn't want you to be in misery. God doesn't want you to have a ball and a chain around your, around your ankle because of something you've given into. And see, we have those pet sins. We got those pet sins and temptations. Oh, oh, it's so nice. I like it so much. I don't want to give it up. Don't, get, don't take it away from me. We got these pet sins and temptations. But you go to James 1, verse 13, and you will see sin's downward spiral, and it starts with, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own desire for what he should not have. It starts in the heart. See, that's why Jesus could take temptation for us and be victorious over it, and he showed us how to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God because he had no inclination to go that way. So he was perfectly qualified. And yes, he knows we will fall, but he doesn't want us to. There's no excuse for it, right? What do you do? You want to try to help someone who's been caught in temptation over and over again and really messed up their life. What, how can you help other people when someone you know Someone you love keeps getting caught up. Consistently giving in. And they're, all, they're just all messed up. What do, you, what do you do to help them? Let me give you a couple things. First, you speak the truth in love with them. The best thing, the, the best thing for them is for them to hear truth from you. To let them know that their, their, their choices are destructive and they're messing themselves up. You can help them by giving them some perspective. To help them see that their choices also affect other people. You might even share with them how much it hurts you to see them going through what they're going through. How much you don't want them to have to go through the consequences. And then, and then be there for them. Be there for them. Let them know that you will be there. And, and the sad thing is, sometimes you've got to let somebody do, do what they're going to do. You've got to almost watch a person self-destruct. And it is so tough to watch, isn't it? But you've got to let a person self-destruct and just make sure you're there so you can pick up the pieces. People who insist on going solo are ones who often fall. There's strength in numbers. And a good way to stand firm is to be a part of a small band of believers who are there for you weekly, even daily, and they are there for you to be, they're available. They're, you're teachable with one another. And, and there's an accountability. 
And it's not 100% guarantee, but it's really helpful. God uses it as a deterrent to, to falling into temptation often in the lives of those who are in groups like that. And if you don't have people like that in your life, you need people like that in your life. And don't wait around for them to come find you. Just initiate and pray and say, God, who? Who can I get? Who can be like that in my life? Because we, we all need to, to have small segments of people that we are connected to that know us and love us and care for us and pray for us and will challenge us and will kick us. You know what I'm talking about. When need be. Will tell us that when we're off base. Let me, let me close with this. Let's talk about the reward of resisting temptation. There is an upside to temptation. Temptation isn't always bad. Temptation sometimes is a very good thing. What? How can it be a good thing? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, when the, it said then the devil left him. Jesus said, go, Satan. You're dismissed. You're fired for now. Go, get out of here. It says, Satan left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. What a beautiful picture that must have been. Angels of God sent out to render service, to, to, to minister to the Son of God. Did they bring him food? Maybe. He was hungry. They didn't make those stones into bread. But they came and ministered to him. There was a blessing that came about, and Satan laid off for a while. Again, don't ever think that just because you have one, tre- one, one victory, everything's great and you're free and clear. No. Your legs will get out, cut out from underneath you if you try that. You've got to be on the alert. We're in a battle. We're in a war. It is a spiritual battle all the time. So you submit to God and, and, and resist the devil and he flees. See, when we desire and are willing to choose what, what is right in God's sight, God's blessing comes. That's the upside of temptation. God's blessing comes when, when we resist temptation, when we choose what is right. We find that God's resources are readily available to us, that the, the door is not barred. And how is that blessing made evident? First of all, God helps us. You can look in, in Hebrews 2, uh, verses 16 through 18, but it says that he doesn't give help to angels, but he helps the seed of Abraham, those who are of faith. He helps them. He, he rescues them. He, he pulls them out of the quicksand. He pulls them to safety. Jesus was genuinely tempted so he can genuinely help us. He can genuinely understand. What else does God do to help us? He matures us. He strengthens us. He helps us endure. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, so that you may be able to endure it, that you would have perseverance. Verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, right before that, says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before a fall. And it's when we think we're strongest that we are really the weakest. And that we will fall the hardest. So we gotta stay humble and dependent upon God for every breath, for every step, for every decision, for every temptation that comes our way and our response to it. The last thing is that, that God guides us. God guides us. He helps us. He matures us and he also guides us. Matthew 6, 13, we pray this, lead us not into temptation. Jesus gave us that prayer to pray. 
We're praying this. Help us, Lord, to avoid the dangers of sin. Help us to avoid the dangers of sin. See, temptation comes to all of us. God knows what you're going through. God knows the kind of temptations you face. And Satan suggests that the things you desire can be yours if only, if only, you can get what you want. You can fill, fulfill all your desires. All you have to do is go after them in the world's way and not God's. You can get it now. You can have what you want now. That's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's quicksand. That's a trap. And it leads to a ball and chain. It leads to slavery, not freedom. Temptation given into wreaks havoc on souls, on families, on churches, and on communities. A better way is to recognize that we were so bad that Christ had to die. But at the same time, recognize that we are so valuable to him that he wanted to. That he wanted to. And in that truth, live. Let's pray. Lord God, we we want to, to, to live in that truth. Lord, we don't want to keep falling and falling and excusing our ways. Lord, you're strong. We're weak. You're great. And we know, Lord, that we, we were so bad that Jesus had to die, but that we are so valuable to you that he wanted to. And in that truth, Lord, we do want to live. Amen.